Thank you. Well, we have a small topic to discuss today, don't we? It's fun sometimes to hear people's stories of, of events and experiences in their life where they've had a, a, a real crisis and how they've reacted to it uh, quickly and decisively, heroically even. Um, I think perhaps the easiest examples are, are parents who've rescued their kids, and you can hear stories of parents who have literally reacted and snatched their kids falling out of midair or lifted incredible weights or, or kept them from drowning. And they, they came into a moment of, of focused threat and the fear that came from that threat marshaled all their faculties in an incredible burst. They encountered it and overcame it with fantastic stories of it. That is not the kind of fear Jesus is talking about today. This fear, anxiety or, or worry maybe your translation have, or even concern. The old King James has take no thought in the sense of don't focus in on this. This is an a undefined, amorphous, unfocused potential. What might happen? kind of fear. And so it can't be addressed, really. It just kind of follows us around like the cloud over Eeyore. And we can't really get a hold of it or address it. The, the, the focusing in of our faculties to a, a real threat isn't there because it's all what might happen. And Jesus, in this passage, wants us to understand that this kind of anxiety and this kind of worry is related to God in this way. Who can be trusted to control what could happen, what might happen, to provide for what I need in the face of a world that we scramble sometimes to make sense of and find our way in? Can God be trusted with what we need? And if you look down at verse 32 that Joe just read, we see that's what Jesus is talking about. The Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. This is a question of the needs that we have physically in this world. Can we abandon ourselves to the righteousness and the radical pursuit of God's kingdom that Jesus is talking about and know that he's going to take care of us. That's what Jesus is going to discuss today. So it's, uh, I, I've called this a master's level question in, in the sense that this is difficult stuff. This is graduate level question in, in our spiritual lives. Because trusting God in this way can be very difficult. <clears throat> Here's the main idea of this passage. Jesus wants us to understand that anxiety, worry, in relation to who or what we trust, and in relation to our priorities. 
And so anxiety is something that actually tells you something about yourself. What do you trust in? And where are your priorities? In the Sermon on the Mount, I believe that this passage is the longest sustained topic that Jesus addresses. And so it's probably pretty significant. And let me just say that as Joe, just as Joe prayed, with the number of us here in the room, there are probably about that many sources of anxiety. We, we live in a world in which anxiety is a pandemic. Maybe I shouldn't use that word considering what... <laughs> self-image. Self-image is a problem, isn't it? We worry about how we appear. That's just uh, become so common with the Instagram culture, Instagram envy, social media pressure to be, to present ourselves. There's anxiety of whether we are loved or will be loved. There's all sorts of sources of what we can be anxious about. And I think that this passage, if we were going to sit down and have a cup of coffee or tea and talk about it, those are applications that we can find out of this passage. If we want to talk about what our self-image is, what our self-worth is, Jesus addresses it, doesn't he? We'll see that with his how much more statements. And so it has something to say, he has something to say about that. It applies in many ways, but we're going to focus in this morning on what he focuses in on, which is money. What is the role that money plays with anxiety? And to do that, we're going to have to back up a little bit because look at the first verse in verse, 30, in verse 25. If you've got an ESV like I do, it says, therefore. Or perhaps yours says, for this reason or something of that sort. We can't really start there because Jesus is saying, because of what I just said, now I want to say this. So we have to go back a verse and... Um, and see what it is that he said. Now, if you have an ESV, you've got little, you notice there in, in dark black, do not be anxious. That's not actually part of the text. The, the uh, Bible printers put that in to let you know what that passage is about, but they kind of stuck it in the wrong place. Because verse 24 is the basis of what we want to talk about. It's the basis of, for the following talk on anxiety. So let me read it here. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, Matt started to unpack this for us a little bit last week. We're going to look at it a little more here in, so that we can flow into the passage on anxiety. So the therefore tells us that it is the basis um, for the whole discussion on worrying, on anxiety. And it creates a fundamental choice for us. This choice that Jesus is talking about in verse 24 is going to determine our course on worrying and anxiety. So here's the first point then. An yeah, sorry. Uh, anxiety is bound to the mastery of God. Anxiety is bound up with the topic of God being the master. So Jesus makes a statement here um, that actually is a bit so obvious that it borders on the absurd. 
And that is, he says, no one can serve two masters. Well, the ESV has serve there, and you can actually read in their introduction, they explain when they use serve and slave. But if we, if we think in terms of slave, you can see it's kind of overly obvious. If a slave is somebody that the master owns completely, every moment of his life, every function that he does, clearly you can't have two masters. You can't have two masters that... that um, have claim ownership over one slave. It's just simply not going to work. And so it's an extraordinarily obvious statement that Jesus makes. But what he does then is brilliant because he does not go on to speak about the owners. He actually addresses the slaves. The problem with having two masters for Jesus is not that there are two masters, it's what it does to the slave and the loyalty division that he experiences or she experiences. Don't want to exclude anybody here. We all struggle with this, don't we? Jesus is talking about the priorities of the one who is owned, acknowledging that the idea of dual ownership of a slave is simply silly. A person cannot serve two masters because of the internal struggle that they're going to face and they're going to have to deal with, with divided loyalties. And then Jesus uh, slips in a device that is quintessentially um, Jewish. He's going to use a typically Jewish style of speech, and I'm going to show it to you here so that you can know that I'm telling you the truth, this is what he's talking about. He does what is called a chiasm, which is where he has the beginning reflect the end. So here's actually how you can see the verse laying out. He starts with a statement, you cannot serve two masters, and he ends with the same, doesn't he? You can't serve God and mammon. The last statement <clears throat> expands a little bit exactly who the two masters are. But in between, you can see that crossing over. You're going to hate or despise one, or you're going to love and be devoted to the other. The tension is going to be in the slave. Who will you serve? Who are you going to become a slave to? In the manner of his day, this, this dichotomy of hate and love wasn't actually a hatred, you know, the emotive, angry rejection it was actually a statement of priority. I prefer, I will prefer one over against the other. There's been a lot of times where folks have gotten upset with Jesus' statement where he says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to hate your father and mother. He's not actually saying hate your father and mother, but he is saying, if you want to be my disciple, I am going to be more important to you than they are. You will prefer me over them. But he's not saying hate them. It was their way of saying you have a choice to make. And that's the same thing he's saying here. You're either going to be devoted to the one that you think can bring you your needs, or you're going to be devoted to the other. It's going to be an either-or situation. And Jesus clearly says, you can't have both. You're going to default to one. And so we have to choose what it is that we want. We can't look to both God and money for our provision, for what we need. If we are going to devote our lives to Jesus, we can't constantly be Lot's wife looking back over our shoulder. 
Are you going to make that choice, Jesus says. Our loyalty and our hearts are going to go with what we feel is going to provide us with what we need. And remember now, he's talking about what we need, not what we think we need. And, and last week, Matt showed us that at the beginning of the previous passage on treasures on earth, that Jesus dealt quite decisively with what we want. What do you want? Where do you want your treasures to be? Now he's speaking about, if you follow me, who's going to take care of you? And can you trust God to do that? I think Don Carson lays this out very clearly. He says, Jesus is saying here that physical needs cannot be the thing that distracts us from focusedly seeking after God's kingdom and His righteousness. And that even more, a trust in God is one of the key elements that's going to make us different than the Gentiles or the pagans who chase after these things. And so here we have a clue. What does it mean to be a city on a hill? What does it mean to be a light to the world? Well, one of the things is where our focus is and where our trust is. So this becomes an important passage for understanding what it means to follow after, to be distinctive and set apart. Who do we trust? What is it that we feel we need? And who do we feel can supply it? This is a fascinating thing, this next one. Um, because number five there, I don't know of any other passage in the Bible where Jesus acknowledges that he has a rival. And then I, you see in parentheses, kind of. In the Old Testament, all the gods were consistently portrayed as, as powerless, impotent carvings of metal or, or wood. And he says, don't, don't. Don't even go there. They can't do anything. They're powerless to do anything except corrupt you. But here, remarkably, he acknowledges that we have a choice to make and that we can serve one of two masters because both of those masters have the capacity of getting us what we need. We know this to be true. You can go, you can go out and drive around certain neighborhoods and see that some people have done quite well in getting what they need by following mammon. Now, there are some qualifications. We know mammon is just a cre created thing. But we need to acknowledge that in this narrow way, Jesus says there is a choice. Something else besides me can do what you want. In this narrow sense, Jesus says, money has an influence on your life like nothing else. And there's no other element that can impact your life like money and draw you away like it can. And so he alerts us twice, you can not. It's a decisive call that he says. So how do we balance this? How do we balance this, this extraordinary uh, statement? Well, <clears throat> it leads us to the last observation, and that is, that Jesus assumes that we can choose our own master. He lays it out there. The slave gets to choose their master. That's amazing, isn't it? So how do we choose? How do we know what we should do? 
in terms of life's necessities, what will our life look like if it's a discipleship devoted to Jesus? Or if it's the frantic gathering of goods like the Gentiles have. And so this, this dichotomy of which we're going to choose results ultimately in the choice of a master. And this is all the reason then that goes right into that one word, therefore. All of this is so that Jesus can say, therefore. With this in, in mind, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. And he exhorts us to not follow anxiety. It can't do what we want it to do. It's not going to produce what we want it to produce because it's this undefined attempt to control. It's really what it is, isn't it? It's an attempt to control something that is not, not ours to control. Life the potentials, the needs that we have. How do we get them? How are we going to trust? And how are we going to balance the difficulty of, of not being anxious and acknowledging that God is provider at the same time of being responsible and active and working hard? Go to the ant, thou sluggard, the, the Proverbs say, right? So we have a tension here of how we address this anxiety and how we deal with it. So let me, uh, let me do two more points here. The first is this one. Anxiety is sinful when it grasps at God's mastery. So anxiety is sinful when it is about us and us trying to take His position as the master. The first sub-point of that is there's a mix of worry and selfishness. There is, believe it or not, um, some concern or, or anxiety or worry that's not sinful. Paul, in 2 Corinthians, says that he is burdened with concern, anxiety for the churches. He's worried about them. And so his concern is for their spiritual welfare. There's a legitimate concern that's exhibited in times of scripture, in scripture at times, about our spiritual walk. That we are to be concerned and anxious and worried about where we are in relationship with God. That's the reason for the penitential psalms, isn't it? We can see it with Peter's anxiety after denying Jesus. There's a legitimate reason to be very thoughtful and very concerned at times about our Christian life. And it's, it's hard for me personally to say that a legitimate concern, uh, again, I think it's easiest to point out in parenting, a legitimate concern for your children and their welfare and, and how they're going to turn out and their health and safety, especially in crisis, health crises or, or things like that, it's hard for me to say that that's a sinful thing. But we are people of mixed motives, aren't we? If we could keep that concern, those concerns pure, we'd all be good. But the selfishness starts to creep in. And I think that is really the key. When our concern becomes about me and how it will affect me and what I want and what I desire, that's when the red flag begins to wave, that it's about control. It's about a lack of trust in God as the one who provides what he thinks we need 
not necessarily what I think I need. It's actually trying to repeat the sin of the garden, trying to displace God from his position as the one who rules and reigns and provides and sustains. And I think that's why Jesus ends this this extended topic with verse 34. Don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We can't control what's going to happen tomorrow. God can. And so don't be irresponsible, but at the same time, our days will be days of trouble. Don't try to control them. Be on about what you are to be on about, the kingdom and his righteousness, and deal with each day as the Lord gives it. So this tension of how we deal with anxiety in real life. The second thing is that worry, when it becomes selfish, is a lack of trust in God as our provider and our sustainer. And we need to think back that from the very beginning, this was his role, wasn't it? He puts folks in the garden... I think they were named Adam and Eve, and he says, listen, look around you. There's fruit everywhere. There's food aplenty because he was their provider. The abundant rest of the, parad- of the, 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 the Sabbath day paradigm where every seventh day they were not to work, they were not to gather, the food from the previous day would be enough to sustain them was a, a reminder of that paradigm of the garden. You rest that day. That day is for you and me to have a relationship, and I will provide for you. Every seventh year, don't plant your crops. The sixth year's crops will be enough. You can rest that year and be in relationship with me because I'm your provider. As they wander through the desert, God calls them and says, Look back. Did your shoes ever wear out? Did the enemies ever overcome you? Did anything happen? No, I'm your protector. I'm your provider. It's the role that he's had all along. And think of Jesus in his ministry. Think of the examples. You guys hungry? Who's got a loaf of bread? Who's got some fish? You guys worried about the wind and waves? Let me stand up and say two words. He is the provider. He always has been. And in its simplest form, that's how we view our salvation too, isn't it? He looks at us and he says, just like that song, Christ has regarded our helpless estate and he says, I'm the provider. I will provide myself. I will give you the salvation by delivering myself, taking on your punishment. My death, my resurrection is going to reestablish what you need to be in relationship with God. But he says here, it doesn't stop there. He makes us his children. He makes us new creations. He wipes away the backlog of sin. But then he says, now you seek first the kingdom. Day to day going out, the state that I have put you in of having my righteousness wrapped around you like a robe is to be worked out daily as you learn to trust me and you learn to see that I'm your provider. And you learn to see that my priorities are to be your priorities. My goals are to be your goals. And as I've done from day one, I'll provide for you. That's what Jesus is saying here in this mastery idea. 
to not try to be who we're not. We're not the creator, we're not the provider, we're not the sustainer. And in this way, then, Jesus utterly draws a distinction for his people and says, if you don't do that, how are you different from the pagans? Or Gentiles, this has. Or the version I usually use even says idolaters. All those ideas wrapped up in that world. How, in that word, how are you different from them? Because they're seeking after that God. They're seeking after mammon for what they want and for what they need. How are you different from them? And on top of this, anxiety simply doesn't work, does it? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? Maybe you have a translation that renders that a little more literally, can add a cubit to his stature. Um, a cubit to your stature would not be insignificant. If I could kind of like go that and add a cubit, I would be almost seven and a half feet tall. So that's not an insignificant amount. But again, Don Carson just brilliantly ex explains this idiom. He says, listen, we do the exact same thing. When you get older and you come to a birthday party and, and, and the cake is brought out, what do you say? Well, I've, I've reached another milestone. And Carson points out, you've just used a lineal measurement to talk about a time measuring, right? That's exactly what Jesus is doing. You can't add a lineal measurement to your stature. You can't add a single moment to your life, is what he's saying. Anxiety, you just don't control those things. We don't control much of anything, even though we want to pretend that we do. What a challenge this is then. Powerful words by Jesus. We cannot serve two masters. He repeats it twice. We're either going to trust God for what we need or we're going to pursue mammon. We're going to pursue his goals or ultimately, if we're pursuing mammon, we're going to pursue ours and we're going to use that God of the pagan idolaters to get what we want. And I think that it's true to say that if we're going to trust in our wealth, if we're going to trust in our jobs, if we're going to trust in our hard work, if we're going to trust in our own strategies and our own plans without including Him and acknowledge Him, then we need to accept that along with that, we're going to have to accept anxiety. Because we're trying to control a world that we can't control. And it produces anxiety. So how do we deal with this? How do we... Uh, what are some strategies that we can draw from this on how to deal with anxiety? And, and, and I hope that you'll take some of these and think about them and apply them into your, posi your positions in life, your situations, because we can all be in different contexts and hear these words quite differently. Some are going through extraordinarily difficult times, and to hear Jesus say, don't be anxious, seems almost like trite. Somebody can have no problems at all and rejoice in them. So we're going to hear them in different ways. So please think about this and apply it to your life as we look at what the Bible has to say of strategies or remedies for dealing with anxiety. The first one comes out of this passage. Be observant and meditate. 
three times in this passage, Jesus uses an argument that we can title, how much more? If A, then how much more B? If God so clothes the wildflowers, how much more is he going to clothe you? If he takes care of the birds, how much more is he going to take care of you? If he gives life to your body, how much more? The sparrows later in the book, Jesus is going to say, are sold two for a penny. How much more value does God have for you? But I'd like to ponder for a moment something that John Stott brings out. He was a bird watcher. Loved to watch birds. He never got married, so I guess that was his pastime. And he said that we need to take Jesus literally here and consider the birds. And you know what? I think he's right. In Scripture, you notice so much of it is poetry, and the power of poetry is imagery. And as we look at those images, we are given natural, natural objects in life, and we're told to consider them and to find the spiritual truth in them. In our day and age, a lot of times we will see things and we will automatically, I'm speaking mostly for myself, but probably some of you are going to resonate this. When we see the natural world, we automatically uh, relate them to the alternate theory of atheistic evolution. So consider the heavens, or the glory of God, and we think, yes, how could that come, just come to pass? But I think that, that what Scripture does is actually much more than that. It considers them. It thinks about them. Consider the tree of Psalm 1. How does it grow? Where does it grow? Why does it grow? What happens when it grows? These are images that we can ponder all day, every day, moment by moment. What can a tree teach us? What can Psalm 23 about a flock of sheep and its shepherd, as we think through the images of those songs, what can it teach us? And we have those images remind us again and again that they're there and they have the lessons because God cares about little things like that. How much more? And so be observant. Think about the birds and the wildflowers because Jesus is going to use these other times in the Gospels. Think about sowing and reaping, even though we do it quite differently now. There are literally dozens of similes and metaphors in the Proverbs. Someone's Gracious words are like golden apples. Why not Honeycrisp? I would be much more interested if they were Honeycrisp. Why does he say golden apples? What a great thing to think about. As we think about God's word and let these images come to seep into our hearts and make us realize that God is deeply concerned about his world. And we, as the apex of his creation, he's most concerned about. So be observant. And meditate on these truths. And you'll find a lot of the answers. Some of the questions that this passage applies to, if they just do what Jesus said, would be answered. Do, does trusting in God mean that um, we don't have to be anxious about anything and we don't have to work for our necessities? He's just going to give us this? Gee, I don't know. Look at the birds. What do they do? They're pretty active. Does it mean that we shouldn't plan or strategize or think through uh, contingencies as best we can? I don't know. Look at the birds. Do they try to find the best places to find food? Do they try to be efficient? 
Does this mean that we will never have any troubles in our lives and Jesus is promising that God will provide for us and there will never be any suffering, there will never be times where this passage doesn't seem to apply in our lives because things are so bad? I don't know, look at the wildflowers. They have a short span that tomorrow they're thrown into the oven. And Psalm 103 says that's our lifespan too. The wind blows across the grass and it's as though we were never there. Are we promised not have trouble? So be observant and meditate on these things. Consider these images because God gave them to you for that. They're steeped in spiritual truth. And it will help us as we see these images that he has placed in his word, guided by his word, to fight anxiety. If for no other reason we're not thinking about the things we're anxious about, we're thinking about the images in his word. So that would be the first thing that I think Jesus does. Consider birds. Consider the world around you and how God has made it work. Really ponder it. The second is the passage that Matt read earlier out of Philippians. <clears throat> it's not Jesus' words, but it's, it's something we've got to mention. Uh, Paul suggests the posture of prayerfulness and thanksgiving uh, be given over to God. Thanksgiving, again, makes us focus on what we have, not on what we don't have. And these are important words. Peter says to cast his care, our cares on the Lord because he cares. I suspect that he's simply applying Jesus' dominical saying here to his readers just as we're reading it. They're important words because this fighting of anxiety is a moment-to-moment -moment struggle. And then let me wrap this up by mentioning what Jesus says. Seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. We've seen so far that in the Sermon on the Mount that his righteousness means the perfect covenant loyalty, concerned with an unfailing care for others, concerned for the perfection that God has, an impeccable moral character, all of that, in short, we are to be perfect as God is perfect. That kind of righteousness is to be what we are on about. And thankfully, Jesus has done this for us, hasn't he? He's wrapped us in his righteousness, which is the same righteousness as the Father, by virtue of his, our faith in him as the crucified and risen Savior, who now is the provider and the sustainer. His death paid that penalty that was due us because of our sin. And his resurrection means that he, God has given him a name above every name. He promises to always be with us, to provide for what we need. And he is the undisputed judge of the living and the dead. Everything is under his control. And what does that look like? in the day-to-day -day and moment-to-moment? -moment. How do we learn to trust God and fight anxiety? For the answer to that, I would like to just talk very briefly, and you can go back and look at this story later. But there's a story in Luke 10 about Mary and Martha. It's a passage that deserves its own time, not the two minutes that I'm going to give it. It's a story that's interesting Interestingly, Luke displaced it. Jesus is 
is uh, ministering in Galilee and, and northern Samaria, and all of a sudden there's a passage that occurs in Bethany down by Jerusalem at the house of Mary and Martha. And he placed it there intentionally. The young ruler comes to Jesus and says, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus says, what do you think? And the ruler says, well, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbors yourself. A, in fact, here, I think I've got it laid out. It's not there? All right, well, let's pray to end then. Um, it's, it's an ABBA format, right? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor. Good Samaritan answers the love your neighbor question. Mary and Martha addresses how to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And too often, I think, we say, okay, Mary is the example, right? She's sitting serenely in front of Jesus. And she is, but she isn't. Because that's not real life, is it? And it's created an incredible amount of guilt, especially in, in, in women. Because there's diapers to change, and there's dishes to wash, and there's jobs to handle, and there's housework. And how can I do it all and still sit serenely in front of the Lord? Plus, I'm thinking Jesus and his 12 boys who kind of go traipsing there are going to get hungry pretty quick. Mary is her example, but, but she's not. Martha is, but she's not. She's doing what has to be done. It's real life. That stuff has to be done. But Jesus says, you are anxious. The same word as in our passage. You're distracted. You're troubled. You don't have that focus. You need what Mary has. You see, it's the two sisters together. What does it mean to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind? What does it mean to seek the kingdom? It means that every moment of everything that you do, we do it not with anxiety and distractedness. We do it with the focus of sitting at the Master's feet, hearing what He has to say, loving Him, Desiring that all of our actions are in accord with his goals and his structures. And that's whether we're changing diapers or working on roofs or office or whatever. We need both sisters as an example of what it means to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. It is our activities that we are called to do. Our plannings and our strategies and our hard work all cast with an ultimate focus upon the king who controls our lives who promises to provide, who brings what we need when we need it. That's what it means to focus in on Him. I, I hope that these moment-to-moment -moment strategies, remedies will help because anxiety is a moment-to-moment -moment problem, isn't it? Praying Philippians 4 at, in, at 6 in the morning is not going to help you at 2 in the afternoon probably. We're going to need more than that. Moment-to-moment -moment problems. We're going to need a moment-to-moment -moment strategies. And I hope that con contemplating and meditating, thanking, praying, and that vision of Mary and Martha together can help you in the struggle against anxiety. Let it motivate you. Let the peace of God, the security of being loved, the resolve of having a real meaning and purpose in life, His kingdom, the joy of recognizing the value of who you are and what you are on about instead of what you don't have. Allow these things to fight anxiety because they're wonderful gifts from God. 
And lastly, in this battle, remember to focus on your victories. We have lots and lots of failures. Take Paul's advice on that and forget what lies behind. And focus again. Because tomorrow is going to bring much of the same troubles and the same battles. And tomorrow will bring its victories. So don't be discouraged. Jesus has won this battle already. We are working out our salvation, but we already have it. So don't let your, your failures discourage you. Focus in on the victories of when you do trust him. And in that tough battle of anxiety, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and he will direct your paths. That's what the, song, that's what the Proverbs were talking about in Proverbs 3. He'll provide for you, and he'll give you peace. Let me pray, and then we'll take just a few moments to ponder this. <clears throat> Father, please help us to seek first your kingdom amidst the worries and the troubles of the day. Help us to be the sisters who have things that we must be doing, but help us to do them with a posture of focus upon you. Roll our anxieties away as we seek to follow you and trust you. May we be diligently on about your righteousness. May our lives not look like those who chase after mammon. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand.